Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kalt and sharp at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. With Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is launching a new series on Russian Jewry in the 19th century under the Tsar, Tsarist Russia. And before I explain the series, I want to um, just make a shout out for the podcast itself, um, Jewish History Soundbites. If you would like to help the podcast in any way, you can spread the word. Maybe tell your friends and family about the new series. Um, if you think that they'll enjoy it as well, you can also leave a rating and a review on any podcast platform where Jewish History Soundbites is. And um, I want to explain, this series is not going to be a, um, a part one, part two kind of thing. Each episode stands on its own. It's not really a series at all. Um, and I'll also drop regular episodes as well, like interspersed within the series. In other words, don't just clock out for a couple of months um, if you think that the if you don't uh, um, if you think I'm going to lose track or something because there's going to be regular episodes not related to this topic, and also I think that not only is it a compelling topic, an important one, and a fascinating and interesting and exciting and fun one, um, Russian jury in the 19th century, Tsarist Russia. But I also think that each one is in the exploring a different angle. In other words, it's not a chronological sequence. It's not um, something that you have to like keep track of the narrative. So like it's a general story. It's kind of like a, a Seinfeld uh, uh, season. It's, it's, it's a general story arc, but each episode stands on its own. Just this is a show about something. And it's not just something. It's one of the most important topics in um, recent Jewish history. Um, it's going to be a journey that explores one of the major stories that very much impacts the world we live in today. Because at some level, 
the largest Jewish community in the world, which was Tsarist Russian Jewry of the 19th century, is a story of the modern Jewish world um, that they are struggling under the Tsars. It was a very oppressive regime, and there were quite a few challenges which we're going to explore throughout this whole narrative. And there's this struggle to leave the Pale of Settlement where they were restricted to, and this struggle to leave the Pale and get out of the Pale of Settlement where the Tsars had restricted Jewish life really formed modern Jewish identity in many ways because the Zionist movement is born out of it. Um, Hasidus spreads and flourishes um, in, in, in Tsarist Russia. The yeshiva movement of today is, is a product of Tsarist Russia. Um, Jewish politics, both secular and religious, is a product of Tsarist Russia. Jewish media, newspapers, literature, Haskalah, um, all the things that people will look at in Jewish life today, both positive and negative. Immigration is a result of the regime of Tsarist Russia. And like I said, it's the largest Jewish community in the world. It's like half of the Jewish people, um, sometimes even more than that. And everyone can trace their lineage back to the pale at some form and way or another. And therefore, um, every element of this story is relevant, and it's relevant to the world we live in today, and I'm going to explain how that is the case as we go along. And each each episode is, is going to be a completely different story. There's going to be one on Hasidus in the Russian Empire. There's going to be one on the yeshivas and the rabbinate um, in the Russian Empire. There's going to be one about the czarist um, 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 policies regarding the Jewish subjects of Russia. There's going to be about the, um, the politics, um, the the all kinds of things. Either way, I don't have the full list in front of me, but you'll see as we go along, there's going to be a wide array and diverse topics, and I think this is going to be quite interesting. Um, when we speak about the 19th century, so historians describe the long 19th century, because um, historic events don't start and end with uh, round numbers. So we take a long view of the 19th century. In the non-Jewish world, it's usually seen as from 1789, which is technically the 18th century, because that's when the French Revolution broke out and goes all the way to 1914, the beginning of World War I, which is the implosion of the old imperialist order. Um, the Jewish 19th century, especially in the context of Tsarist Russia, is even longer than that. It starts already from 1772 with the beginning of the partitions of Poland, and it ends in 1917, which is the Russian Revolution. So it's a very long 19th century, and when I refer to the long 19th century, I'll be using those parameters. So that's the chronological way to frame this uh, topic. Um, there have been quite a few previous Jewish History Soundbites episodes which covered different angles of this. I had one on the Tsars and the Jews, um, which which touched on this topic. Um, I had one on the partitions of Poland, which kind of touched on this topic. I had a, at least two, maybe more, on the 1910 Rabbinical Conference in St. Petersburg. And there was many others and personalities, in other words, 
um, different people who lived at that time. I definitely had one on, on Rebetzal Khan Spector, who was a major rabbinical personality in the Russian Empire, the Rabbi of Kovna. It touched on this uh, one way or another. So if you want to check back into our archive, all of the Jewish History Soundbites episodes, not only these, but all of them are available both on my website, yudegeber.com, and on every podcast platform. You can listen to any episode that you choose. But this will be more systematic and broad and really cover the whole story uh, uh, of the other. There is uh, so many, so many books written on this topic. I, I One of my favorites is a, um, a book called, in Hebrew, Toldoti Hude Russia, Volume 2. It's a three-volume set. But the second one is uh, Tsarist Russia, and it's a collection of essays which covers the entire gamut of the Russian Jewish experience during the Tsarist era. It's edited by Dr. Ilya Luria, but each essay is authored by another competent scholar. Really interesting, a diverse and important read. I don't know if it's in English, but I read it in Hebrew a couple of times. And that book is kind of like going to give me the basic... um, almost like the table of contents. In other words, I'm going to follow many of the essays in that book uh, because it really like covers basically every topic. Uh, the Besides for the time frame, which I already mentioned, it's also important to understand the geography, the, the map of what we're looking at when we talk about the Jews of Tsarist Russia, um, because... It's the partitions of Poland which bring the Jews into Russia, which, I men- which, which I've mentioned in other episodes. And therefore, we're talking about what's, if you look at a map of Europe today, we're talking about the con- most of the country of Poland. Poland changed its borders as well. Most of today's Poland, um, which I'll explain the difference between Congress Poland and Russia proper soon. Um, but for, for our intensive purposes, we'll consider most of Poland as part of the Russian Empire with a certain level of autonomy that uh, Poles had. Um, today's Baltic states, in other words, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia, um, Belarus and Ukraine, those were the heart of Jewish settlement in, in Russia, uh, today's Belarus and Ukraine, and then um, parts of Russia itself, it's in Russia proper. Uh, Jews lived as well. Um, and where most Jews were, were required to live by Tsarist law was what was known as the Pale of Settlement, which covered the countries that I mentioned. And um, although the borders changed a bit, uh, for a while, and, and it, did, it did get into the borders of Russia itself, today's, today's Russia, um, but they were mostly restricted to the Pale, although there were certain Jews who were allowed to live outside the Pale, which is another episode that we'll do in the context of this uh, series, which is not really a series. There are also Jews who lived in communities that were far away, and the Russian Empire, when it expanded, they ended up under Tsarist Russia. Let's say, for instance, the Jews of Bukhara, or the Jews of Georgia, or Mountain Jews. Um, so these Jews did not live in the Pale of Settlement. They lived in Tsarist Russia, and they were not even what we would call regular Ashkenazi Jews. They were Bukharian Jews, or Georgian Jews, or Mountain Jews, or others. There are several others, other communities as well. So that's also something we want to explore, and perhaps we'll get to have an episode about it as well. So we covered chronology, geography. We started talking about uh, demographics. The demographics of the Jewish population in Tsarist Russia indicate its centrality. 
because it is the largest. By the time the partitions of Poland were done, the Tsars had inherited the largest Jewish community in the world, and then this already largest Jewish community in the world would explode in the 19th century, and by the end of the 19th century, um, it was well over 5 million Jews, it was nearly 6 million Jews living in Russia, and that's even with loads of emigration, all this leaving Tsarist Russia, migrating um, to different countries around the world, primarily immigration to the United States, um, so that it, it's it's just a massive community. There's also different lenses through which to view the history of Russian Jewry under the Tsars. We can look at it externally. In other words, what did the Tsars legislate and do to the Jews? What did the Russian government want to do and do and execute to the Jews in their control? What was the system of laws? What were the what were the different decrees and 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 problems and challenges and pogroms even uh, later on. That's one way to view it. We can also look at it internally. How did the Jews live in the Pale Settlement? How did the Jews, what was the communal life like? What was their political life like? What was their religious life, economic, the urbanization eventually of the Jews of Russia? Also the secularization of Russian Jewry. So there's so many areas to explore. I think this is going to be really exciting. The first topic I want to do, and I think this is appropriate to start with it, is to pick up um, where I kind of started in an earlier episode about the czars and the Jews. So I want to really like expand on that and, and really uh, dive deep into it, because the first thing we have to understand is how did the czars themselves, the Romanov dynasty, which controlled the Russian Empire, how did they view their Jewish subjects? Um, now, one of the one of the one of the things. Whenever we we talk about czars, there's always the question of of all these stories about different Jews and Jewish leaders meeting with the czar, all these different rebbes who met with the czar, and different uh, community leaders, and what did they say to the czar, and how did the czar respond? And most of these stories are nice, um, nice because it's important in folklore and and it gives a sense of the times and it gives a sense of of how the Jewish community reacted to the Tsar and how they viewed their own leaders. So I, I never minimize the importance of folklore, but most of these stories never happened. Um, there were very few times that Jews actually met with the Tsar and were able to interact with uh, him over the over the 19th century. There were a few such uh, stories, not many. Um, so the proliferation of those stories definitely uh, gives us a sense of... of uh, of how we would want to have uh, uh, history uh, uh, seen and uh, less much what what the reality itself uh, was. Um, so that's that's also maybe we'll bust some of those myths along the way of different rebbes and rabbis meeting with the czar. Um, the um, the um, if we go all the way back to the beginning, um, even though I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but I want to just. You know, broaden it a little bit and mention a few other points that I did not speak about in that episode way back then. The first um, czar, who is really Tsarina, who was in charge with the partitions of Poland, was Catherine the Great, Yakterina, and I think that's how you pronounce it in Russian. She was the Tsarina from 1764 to 1796. So all three partitions of Poland took place under her reign. The three partitions of Poland were. 1772, 1793, and 1795, when the kingdom of Poland ceased to exist. So the begin. So now they have all these Jews. 
Um, before the partitions of Poland, there were no Jews, or at least officially, there were no Jews in Russia. At least from 1744, possibly even earlier, it was officially illegal for Jews to settle at all in the Russian Empire. And now that they gobbled up Poland, and they got all these Jews, and they had to figure out what to do with them. So the Tsars begin Jewish, le- Jewish legislation, um, uh, their Jewish legislation, because they went from literally zero to the largest Jewish community in the world, basically instantaneously, meaning over three partitions, so it's not really it's over you know, uh, 20-something years, but it's almost instantly. Um, so this led to the government consideration and a what would be a process of legislation, what to do with, what are they going to do with all these Jews? And they phrased it eventually as the Jewish question. So the original phrasing of what's known in Europe as the Jewish question um, is phrased by the Russian czars and the, and the Russian government uh, in the empire. Eventually, unfortunately, in the 20th century, the Nazis would say that they have the final solution to the Jewish question. In other words, that the which en- ends up in the in the in the Holocaust, the final solution. So that it, it's it, it's this tragic ending. But it's it's um, the phrase, the Jewish question. In other words, that kind of like there's this problem with, in quotation marks, obviously, that there's this problem with with the with the Jews. There we and thereby it needs an answer to this question that is originally phrased by the czars and their government. So initially, under the reign of Catherine, Catherine the Great or Yakterina, the the Jews are granted some rights. They're given rights, partial emancipation as an urban merchant class, and at the same time, they were allowed to keep initially at this stage in the late 1700s their own Jewish autonomy of the kahal of their own court system, their own. Um, leg- legislative process of the of the kahal, so they they almost like get the best of both worlds at this time. So it actually does start off pretty well, but due to a rise in economic merchant competition competition in the Russian interior, in other words, these Jewish merchant class from what what used to be Poland and now is Western Russia, they now see these new opportunities to go engage in trade and commerce in the Russian interior, which they had never been able to do previously. And they start competing with Russian merchants in the Russian interior. So right away, they get restricted by the government um, that they're only allowed to engage in commerce in the annexed areas from Poland. In other words, the partition areas from Poland, the western districts, uh, uh, provinces of the empire. And that is the early stages of the Pale of Settlement. In other words, they start getting restricted to the areas of what used to be Poland and because of this economic uh, competition, and that is the early stage of what comes to be known as the Pale. But there is another thing. The Russian Empire is expanding south. They're engaged in wars and conquering areas from the Ottoman Empire, which is the major empire to the south. And these new areas in the south are called New Russia, and they want there to be Russian settlement to New Russia to be this buffer zone against the Ottoman Empire. So not only did they permit Jewish settlement in New Russia, they encouraged Jewish settlement there. Um, They wanted them to engage in agriculture. They wanted people to settle there. This was also seen as a mechanism of productivizing the Jewish population because they wanted them to they they wanted to encourage economic reform. They didn't like 
that the Jews were involved in the alcohol trade, that they were merchants, that they were money lenders, that they were um, involved in business. They wanted them to be, quote, more productive, end quote, as far as the Russian czarist government was concerned. And therefore, they allowed them to purchase um, real estate and farmland and agriculture in the areas of New Russia. This they thought this would be an incentive for them to not. And they would, you know, the, the Russian government said, "We'll kill two birds with one stone. We'll have the Jews migrate there, and they'll be productive, and also it will settle New Russia." Now, the general czarist policy throughout this entire time period can be summarized as one goal and with two mechanisms to achieve that goal. The goal of the Tsarist government was integrating the Jewish population into Russian society. That was the goal, and it's incredibly consistent, at least until 1881. 1881, things changed, but I think we'll have another episode devoted to the Tsars from 1881 and on, because that's really a new story. So the... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the time frame that I'm focusing on in this episode, excuse me, is... Um, until 1881. So the goal is incredibly consistent. They want to integrate the Jewish population into Russian society. The two mechanisms remain pretty consistent. The mechanisms were, and again, this is the view of how it's perceived by the Tsarist government. They want to rid the Jews of what the Tsarist government perceives to be religious extremism or religious fanaticism, um, from their Russian Orthodox Church perspective, um, it, it was they felt that as a result of the kahal autonomy that the Jews enjoyed throughout the centuries uh, in the Polish kingdom, and the, the fact that Jews followed Talmudic law, right? They follow the Gemara, the Talmudic law. So from this this um, Russian Orthodox religious perspective and anti-Semitic Russian Tsarist perspective. The Jews developed, as a result of the Kahal autonomy and Talmudic law, they developed these ghetto isolationist practices. And they need to get out of this ghetto isolationist practice and integrate into Russian society. That was one problem as seen from the Russian uh, czarist government perspective. The second thing they saw was that they wanted economic productivity. Like I mentioned before, they endeavored for the Jews to transition from their customary occupations into more productive ones. This was the philosophy of all European empires in general in the 19th century, was to achieve maximum economic productivity from all of its subjects for the betterment of the empire. So that's pretty consistent with all empires, and they want that from every segment of the population, and the Jews are included in that broader context. So the Jews aren't special in that regard. They want more productivity from all their subjects because the government, the empire wants to get rich um, and powerful and, and support an army and, and you know, be, 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 be a more dominant in the European continent. Um, so the traditional economic activity was seen as problematic from the government perspective because they felt it was not productive, it was detrimental, it was competitive, it was exploitative of the of the uh, of the uh, of of the Russian Christians and of of the lower classes, and therefore they wanted them to be engaged in more productive economic activities. They wanted them to transition away from the alcohol trade and from money lending and from merchants and and 
and uh, small-time businessmen and all that. So that's what the uh, the government viewed as problematic. And um, and they felt that the new economic goals that the czarist government had in mind for the Jews would solve this problem. So bearing the goal of integrating the Jews into Russian society and the two mechanisms that we said, that we mentioned, um, to achieve them, that will really serve as guiding lights for the entire century, at least until 1881. Like I said, things change in 1881. And this is a way that we can understand the Tsar's governmental policy regarding its Jewish population. Now, what's important to the story is that each Tsar had a different way of going about it. And sometimes the same Tsar would attempt different approaches. But the overall policy is surprisingly consistent. Under uh, uh, Tsarina Catherine the Great, there, she uh, made two significant special taxes which were imposed on the Jews specifically. Number one, a double tax, more than the rest of the population. Now that was straight up discriminatory. That was just because they're Jews. That was a you know just a, um, a d take advantage, discriminate against Jews. The Russian Orthodox Church, of which the Tsar was always the head of the church, was very anti-Semitic. The Romanov dynasty was always anti-Semitic. It was never really um, you know wonderful under the Tsars, even under the Tsars who were considered reformers and progressive and liberal, it was never like, you know, you know, amazing under the czars. It was sometimes tolerable and sometimes worse. Um, that, that's really if we want to summarize it. So um, that was one tax. Another tax was actually to the advantage of the Jewish community. There was a 500 ruble tax to exempt Jews from the military draft. And um, this was happily paid by the Jewish community. Um, the Kahal paid this 500 ruble tax for every Jew who wanted to uh, avoid the draft. Um, and the, the Jewish community did not want to serve in the Tsar's military for various different reasons, religious and other, um, um, anti-Semitism, all kinds of reasons. And, uh, and therefore, they're happy to pay this extra tax just to get out of the military draft. And for many years, until 1827, um, Jews in Russia did not serve in the military. Um, there was. It's also important to understand that there was a double conflict between the promulgation of legislation regarding the Jews in Russia during this time and the execution of that legislation. What was the double conflict? The first conflict was that, in theory, there was this uh, philosophy of the government which was enlightened absolutism. In order to maximize the economic benefit for the empire... They wanted to be enlightened as an absolutist way, not in a democratic way. Uh, it was an autocratic dictatorship empire of the czars, but enlightened because they wanted to maximize economic benefit for the empire. That uh, philosophy, that theory, that governmental policy very often clashed with the reality that the Russian economy and infrastructure and government institutions were not modernized. And therefore, they had no way of properly overseeing the implementation of many of their own laws in such a broad scope of activity. For example, in 1844, the Tsar, um, by then it was Nicholas I, who was notorious, uh, anti-Jewish, and the Jew Jewish Jews in Russia suffered under his reign. But in 1844, one of the laws that were passed was a annulment of the Kahal system. No more Jewish autonomy. So they got rid of it. This would be a way to, 
you know, stop the Jewish isolation from the regular community and integrate them into Russian society. So the Ka'al was annulled. It was no longer recognized by the government. But the fact of the matter was that on the ground, things remained practically in place, even following its official annulment, because the government had no way of collecting taxes and no way of regulating Jewish life in the, each shtetl, in each community, without some sort of Jewish leadership of the Kahal. So in practice, it, it, it kind of continued. The same thing with the rabbinate. Even though they no longer recognized the regular rabbis, there was a double rabbinate, which becomes a major theme, and I'm going to devote an episode to that. There's the Rav Mitam, the government rabbi, the crown rabbi, and then there's the real rabbi, the spiritual rabbi, um, who's not recognized by the government. And then the government realizes that the the crown rabbi is not the real rabbi, and they have to kind of like unofficially recognize the other rabbis. So it becomes you know, an issue that, that, that they legislate something and then in practice it doesn't work out. Same thing in education, in real estate, and many other things. So that you have that inherent conflict. The second conflict um, between theory and execution of legislative policies is that many times you had enlightened policies or reforms that different czars, not all czars, for instance, Nicholas I never had that, but other czars did, Alexander I and Alexander II, more famously, the great reforms. So they would have these reforms, um, which were to benefit not only the Jewish community, but many times other subjects of the Russian Empire. And these enlightened policies or reforms often clashed with official anti-Jewish stance, the official anti-Jewish stance of the czar's government, its lower-ranking officials, and the general populace, who was still steeped in medieval anti-Semitism, which remained in the countryside, and especially at all levels, from the government, the, the czar himself, all the way down to the lowest parish priest, there is the classical anti-Semitism of the Russian Orthodox Church, which never changed. That was always there. So you'd have this you know, policy reform to legislate and, and benefit the community in order for them to maximize benefit and integrate them into Russian society, and it would clash with the regular anti-Semitism, their own anti-Semitism. So their own policies clashed with their own anti-Semitism. So that's going to be a consistent theme as well. In 1796, Tsar Paul begins his short reign, cut short after five years in 1801 with his assassination, the only thing that I've mentioned during his reign is that's when the Jewish question is exactly is, is really phrased during his time. Because like I said before, there's two basic assumptions regarding the Jews in, in, in inherent, uh, inherent in the uh, empire. Uh, the Jews, the, the Russian Jews, uh, who, were, who became part of Russia through the partitions of Poland, um, they felt, like I said, just to review, number one, the centuries of discrimination and Talmudic law and isolation from their surroundings facilitated the creation of this alternative Jewish society and alternative Jewish culture, uh, and and they, and that was, and as a result, the Russian government viewed them as religious fanatics, which was a problem because they wanted to integrate them into Russian society. Like I said, that's the overall goal. The second problem, which is largely as a result of the first one, is that the economic issue of what the Russian government viewed as Jewish exploitation of Russian Christians in commerce and business practices. This is the czarist Russian view. There was 
It's hard, it would be a hard argument to actually prove that there was exploitation, but this was the Russian czarist government view. This, was, uh, this idea of the Jewish question was crystallized during the short reign of Tsar Paul. And the solution embarked upon by the Tsars was integration. We want the Jews of Russia to integrate into Russian society. This would rid the Jews of their Talmudic religious fanaticism and encourage them to engage in more productive areas of the economy. That was their policy. Now, this is obviously all from the view from the Tsars. The Jews did not see things this way, which we'll have to explore in their own episode. Um, this solution was premised upon the ideas of the Western Enlightenment and of the Austrian Empire's enlightened absolutism, and uh, and would subsequently guide policy until 1881. Sometimes it would be incentivized in positive ways, and sometimes through coercion. There's different czars used the carrot or the stick. They sometimes applied pressure, and sometimes they generated reform. All of this towards the greater goal. If we'd skip ahead to 1881, we can ask, was this a successful uh, did they achieve their goals? And not really. It was very limited. There was some success. They did uh, tr- uh, um, successfully integrate some Jews into Russian society. And the reason is, is because the autocratic regime of the Romanov dynasty, they did things very conservative and very slowly. They never wanted to give full emancipation. And, um, and it wasn't so successful. And when it's not so successful... The Tsarist government becomes disenchanted. The Jewish question seems to be exploding. They don't know what to do anymore. A century of work didn't work out. And as far as the Jews were concerned, it was also a problem because they said, "What what does the government want from us? They're not giving us emancipation. They're not letting us out of the Pale of Settlement. We're going crazy here. Poverty is, and that's when things explode for the Jews, Jewish population, that's immigration, that's Zionism, that's all those things. So we're skipping ahead of the story. We go back to the beginning of the century. Alexander I becomes the uh, Tsar in 1801, and he's there until 1825. And there are early reforms. Uh, he uh, passes legislation in 1804, a long list of laws regarding the Jews. This is the first systematic attempt to legislate the Russian government policy regarding the Jewish population. I spoke about that in in another context that actually legalized the Hasidic movement. That's when the active opposition, the Hisnagdas to the Hasidic movement ends. It becomes a theological uh, opposition afterwards. It's not an active opposition because essentially the legislation of 1804, the Tsars legalized um, uh, the Hasidic movement by allowing different communities to have different customs and different shuls. And... um, and it also weakened the Kahal, which was the goal of the Tsarist government. And uh, and then Alexander, even though he the first, even though he had reforms in his early years, but following um, the Napoleon Wars, when Ru- Napoleon is defeated out of Russia, so there's a reactionary policy following the Napoleon Wars because he's concerned that these there's be too much Napoleonic Russian, re- uh, excuse me, French Revolution ideas of liberalism and emancipation uh, going to be in Russia. So he there's a reactionary policy. Um, he did offer real estate and tax relief in exchange for any Jews who would migrate to New Russia to engage in agriculture. So that was a big incentive. Many did so. These districts of New Russia in the south were eventually included in the Pale of Settlement. In 1825, 
the infamous reign of Nicholas I, Tsar Nicholas I, Nikolai, um, who lasts 30 years from 1825 to 1855. This is the most memorable and infamous of all the Tsars, uh, as far as the Jews are concerned. Um, uh, very, most of the famous things of his regime became uh, part of the Russian Jewish consciousness. Army service, military service, the draft, starts in 1827. And along with that, along with the general military draft, Jews could not pay to get out of the draft any longer. Now they're included in the military draft. But along with that came the draconian Cantonist decrees, where they're taken for 25 years, and very often it was young children who were taken. The kahal who has to supply these these uh, these children, um, they have to hire kidnappers, choppers, who, uh, which is a tragic episode. It's Jews doing this to other Jews. And uh, I think the Cantonists and the military draft will have to explore in its own episode. But the point is, is that it happens under the, the reign of Tsar Nicholas I. This is also when the um, double rabbinate, the Rav Mitam and the regular rabbi start, which becomes a huge problem in Russian Jewish society. The crown rabbis, which the Russian government recognizes, they register the births and deaths and marriages and divorces and things like that. And then there's the real rabbi, who's the spiritual rabbi, who's not recognized by the Russian government. There's the Haskala Mitam. The Russian Tsarist government attempts to integrate the Jews into Russian society by government-imposed Haskala. They open rabbinical seminaries in Vilna and Zhitomir. The, the minister of education, Sergei Uvarov, becomes this very famous minister of trying to attempt... This is not a Jewish Haskala, um, although they made alliances with Jewish Maskilim in Russia, especially with a German Maskil who they imported, Dr. Max Lilienthal, who they tried to use as, as someone to implement the government policy. But this is really the Haskala Mitam in the 1840s and 50s under Tsar Nicholas. Um, in 1835, he intensifies the borders and makes more rigid borders of the Pale of Settlements. They're really restricted from that time on. Um, there's part of the Haskalah Mitam is having government Jewish schools. Um, that that uh, there's Jewish schools that are from the Russian government um, to encourage the Jews to go to regular schools and not to go to Chadarim anymore. There's the Gzeres Hamalbushim um, that the Jews have to change their mode of dress. There's the 1844 annulment of the Kahal system. They no longer have Jewish autonomy. Um, this is the peak of the attempt of the Tsar and his government in ridding the Jews of, in their view, what the Tsarist government viewed as religious fanaticism and of Jewish exploitation in commerce, and to legislate it out of existence. And during the Tsar Nikolai's time, it was more of the stick than the carrot. It was almost coercion to change their ways. And this is most exemplified in the Cantonists and the Haskalomitam during his reign. Um, this ends in the Crimean War, which was a Russian defeat. Um, now, neither of this, none of this saw much success. There was limited success, but not enough. And there was a frustration on the Tsarist government's part that this did not work. Um, in 1835, there was new legislation from the Kisilev Committee, which solidified the rules and the regulations of Tsar Nicholas's government regarding the Jews. And the long-term results of the rabbinical schools and the government Jewish schools and the double rabbinate with the Rav Mitam and the Jewish population left long uh, scars in the Jewish collective memory and figuring out a new Jewish identity 
and figuring out a new Jewish attitude towards the country of Russia and the Tsar's government due to Tsar Nicholas's reactionary policies. Um, and he, in 1855, on his passing, he's succeeded by Tsar Alexander II, who remains until 1881, until his assassination. And Alexander II is the great reformer. The great reforms, right? His, the previous Tsar, Tsar Nicholas's approach was to punish what he viewed as bad Jews, whereas Alexander II's approach is to reward what he saw as good Jews, right? Since he's the great reformer, he frees the serfs in 1861, and his main uh, act act in regarding his main reform regarding the Jewish population, what has been termed a, a famous term and very important to understand term, and this becomes a very consistent theme through Russian Jewish history under the czars of, of uh, the uh, researcher and historian Ben Nathan's selective integration. Tsar Alexander said there's selective integration. Those Jews who have proven themselves that they're worthy of emancipation, they're worthy of leaving the Pale of Settlement, they are... Um, they served in the army, they got a university education, they're very wealthy, they're you know, merchants of the first guild, and they can leave the pale, they can settle in St. Petersburg, they can get rights, they can you know, get, get, be part of Russian societies. This was an incentive system, and this was very slow progress, because our Alexander, being a Russian czar, he didn't just give emancipation or even selective integration, everything had to go very slowly. Um, there was military draft reform. He ends the Cantonist decrees. He lowers the military draft from 25 years to seven years. He gives permission for Jews to pursue higher education. Then later they capped it. Later on in the century, there was too many Jews. This is the first Jewish quotas at universities was in the Tsarist Russian Empire. The Tsar Alexander also gave permission for Jews um, in the Pale, to purchase real estate. Within the Pale of Settlement, there is also relaxing of censorship. So this is, gives rise to, to Jewish newspapers in Hebrew, in Russian, later on in Yiddish as well, in all three languages. There's a relaxing on Jewish censorship for printing books in Sfarim under the Great Reforms. So there's this proliferation of Jewish literature. This is the golden age of the St. Petersburg elite led by Baron Ginsburg, father and son, later grandson too, Yuzel Ginsburg, Horace Ginsburg, and, uh, and then later David Ginsburg. Gunsberg. Um, this is the, uh, the beginning of Jewish opportunity in Russia to pursue Russian education, higher education, and a very incredibly slow and conservative progress uh, from the Tsar and his government in these reforms. And then later on, it even slows down even more and then even reverses some of the reforms in the 1870s. Um, so that, that is the, the general policy of Tsar Alexander until his assassination in 1881 when there's the big downturn. There's one last thing I would mention is Congress Poland and the Jews of Poland in this context. Uh, Poland had somewhat autonomy under Poles. Uh, Essentially, the Tsar was still in charge of Poland, um, Congress Poland, the central Poland of today. Um, and Polish autonomy is lessened by Tsarist Russian legislation due to two Polish revolts in 1830 and 1863. So the Tsars take away Polish autonomy and they becomes more directly under the Tsarist government control. 
And regarding the Jews, the Jews of Congress Poland were viewed as working with and for the Poles supporting the 1863 revolt for Polish independence, and therefore there was efforts to draw the Jews to the Russian side, to Russify the Jews of Poland, and regulate their commerce, and to draw them away from the Polish aristocracy. So the Jews of Congress Poland in this context had a unique sta status. Uh, they were kind of part of the Pale of Settlement, but not really. They were kind of like also a different category, because for much of the century there was Polish autonomy. They weren't directly under the Tsar. So it was sort of under the Pale of Settlement, but sort of not. Um, it also depends on if it's before the Polish Revolt or after the Polish Revolt. There's also differences even afterwards um, uh, about, uh, there's very often different legislation for Congress Poland and, and, and Jews and, and, and the Jews under the Pale. So not always is, is the Jews of Congress Poland included in the regular story of the Pale of Settlement. So that is the Tsarist Russian policy regarding the Jews of Russia um, in, until the year 1881. We'll continue with this series, which is not really a series because each episode stands on its own. And I will be having regular episodes as we go along as well. So don't tune out if this topic does not interest you as much. Um, but it should interest you because I think it's fascinating. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.